What up, y'all? It's Open Mike Eagle. I'm having a crazy week. The album's coming out this week. Component System with the Autoverse comes out this Friday, October 7th. Today uh, that I'm recording, this is October 4th. We've dropped the second single, which is a song called Circuit City that is produced by the one and only Madlib. Featuring Steel Rift and Video Dave. And I've also announced the tour for the album. And it goes over most regions of the United States. Um, if you want to check in at uh, linktree.com slash openmikeeagle or mikeeagle.net or check me on Twitter, twitter.com slash at mike underscore eagle. And you can always uh, support the show by joining a Patreon, patreon.com slash openmikeeagle. Um, they not only get all the information, they get all the information first. They're always the first to know. I know something and then they know it next. That's how that goes. But new single, album this Friday, and this episode is part one of me discussing the album with Sean Sotaro. He's a content creator over at Complex. He's made a wonderful podcast series about Takashi 69 that they partnered with Spotify on, um, currently covering YNW Melly. Uh, in his legal situation, Sean's a, a a brilliant observer of hip hop culture, documentarian, um, and as you know, I told him multiple times during this conversation, but I think it got cut out. I just think he brings a reverence and um, respect to his uh, journalistic exploits within hip hop that I really appreciate. So check out all of his stuff. And this is part one of my conversation with him discussing the album component system with the auto reverse. Again, I am what is happening was in myself. I keep putting the ings in strange places when I say that this is me and Sean Santaro. Part one of an exploration of the new album component system with the auto reverse part two next week. That might be the last episode. Right, y'all. It's another episode of Secret Scan. Another one where I am what had happened was in myself. I've had an amazing streak of of getting incredible people who are the creators and elevators of awesome hip-hop stories on here to talk to me about my little old albums. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Sean Sitaro. So just wanted to say first, Sean, hello and thank you. Hello and thank you. I'm really honored to be on. It was a, a very pleasant surprise when Rob reached out and asked me if I was willing to do this. Big shout to Rob. Rob is the uh, the editor for Secret Skin this season. He's done a great job, but he's also uh, a couple of times now had a stroke of genius of uh, asking a fantastic person if they wanted to come be a part of this. So we appreciate that. Um, before we uh, get into the real subject of the conversation, which is the album I'm about to release, I did have a question for you. You have your book behind you, Dummy Boy, about Takashi 69 I know you've been following YNW Melly's story a lot. One thing I wanted to ask you in your endeavors, what is it that makes a hip-hop story especially compelling to you? I guess there's a couple levels to that. That's that's a really, really interesting question. The first is almost visceral, right? It's something that you can't look away from. And it has these sort of twists and turns that you're like, wait, that happened? He did that? You know, I think to, to take Takashi as an example, right? You know, one of his gang members let out a, a shot and it was in an arena, like backstage at the Barclays. 
And then he went on Instagram and bragged about it like seconds later, you know, just these Whoa. yeah, stuff that gets that reaction. Right. That, and the, 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 the woe doesn't have to be from like, you know, outrageous crime. It can be from a, you know, a twist or something interesting or whatever, but stuff that gets that right. That I can't believe this happened. The stuff that has me like bothering everyone I know at dinner parties to be like, you're not going <laughs> to believe what I just found out. I did this endlessly while I was reporting the Takashi story. I'm sure everyone was sick of it who is around me. So that's one. The second part is it has to have some kind of resonance to the wider world. Often one I'm not even aware of at the beginning. You know, again, to take Takashi as an example, like there's a connection to what at the time was called SoundCloud rap, right? And how that was marketed and what audiences saw in that. And also, I think this was a story that only could have happened during the Trump years, right? And what does that say about politics in the wider world and how this guy, you know, if I say, well, there's a guy who just, you know, said outrageous things and the fan base loved that and they constantly made fun of opponents and picked on, you know, the biggest people they could find and just endlessly went at them, you know, am I talking about Takashi or Trump, right? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Like the underlying energy of of trolling that was just in our world at that time. Exactly. I can see that being an, an easy avenue to get to the Takashi story. That's really interesting. Yeah. Again, sometimes I'm not even aware of these initial resonances and it's just the, you know, wow, I can't believe that aspect. But often I find underneath there's another level as well. And also, honestly, some mystery, some mysteries to uncover in that, you know, to take uh, Melly, there's a very central question at it. Like, did he, you know, did he commit these murders or not? And underneath that is a whole thing about, you know, family and friends and what happens to a rap crew when all of a sudden there's big money involved and the guy who thinks he has the good ideas is not the guy getting all the money and attention, you know, stuff like that. It's been fascinating work and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I can see it so clearly now how these stories that are interesting on the surface, when you start scratching the surface, you start getting at all these other interesting layers of, of details. And you're right, that does make it fascinating. And I, and I appreciate it too, because it, it really sounds like it comes from a, a genuine, like journalistic sort of space, which is, you know, which is always something I'm wanting to have more of in hip hop you know, is, is a is a genuine sort of curiosity and like journalistic, you know, integrity. So I just wanted to, you know, shout out your work on that level before we turned it over to the the subject of today's conversation, which is my new album, Component System with the Auto Reverse. Well, first, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. It really means a lot that you're listening and paying attention to what I what I'm doing. Absolutely. So to start off, I want to take it back maybe eight years. I was listening this morning to an old episode of this very podcast of Secret Skin. And uh, you gave a, a long and great speech about underground hip hop and what destroyed it. I don't even know if you remember this, but... I've, uh, I've had so many different theories over there, <laughs> so I'm not sure which one it was. <laughs> so you said it was destroyed by two things. Uh, Napster style downloading, which is a whole discussion, you know, we can have at some point, but also by sample laws. Yeah, for sure. What you said was that by the time you got around to it, because of sample laws, you were trying to recreate the music of our youth, but with new restrictions. True. 100%. And I wanted to dig into that for a minute. What jumped to my mind was like, okay, what if the Beatles wanted to put their own spin on Elvis and Buddy Holly, but guitars were outlawed? Right. Exactly. 
Tell me about that idea, because it's such, I've never really heard it put that way before. Well, it just became apparent to me, especially after I talked to Prince Paul and when I talked to him about the lawsuit around that first De La Soul album, you really got the sense of the lawlessness in which they went into the process of making that album. And at the time, that's one of the reasons the project was lauded is because their ambition, where they were taking music from and trying to put this music together was not where everybody else was looking. They were getting stuff like the Turtles, which is ultimately what they ended up getting sued for. And then also even in talking to Dante Ross about it on the most recent season, because since Dante was working with Tommy Boy and he was part of the process in terms of what samples got cleared and what samples didn't, they were saying that on their end, they thought they only needed to clear the samples in the songs. They didn't think the interludes were going to be a big deal. And it also represents Tommy Boy's expectations of how the album would do. But this album comes out, and there's this story of the guy from the Turtles. Like, his daughter is listening to the De La Soul album, and he's like, what is this? And she says, it's De La Soul. He's like, no, that's my record. And then this thing ends up going to court and gets tied up in all this litigation. And between that and the Bismarck E lawsuit, I think it was Gary O'Sullivan, you know, it really established the precedent that making music in this style is not legal. It's, it's illegal. It has officially been called a crime by the courts and, and punishments have been established. And I think it it really changed how creators, hip-hop creators, had to go about making music, especially if they wanted it to be successful. You know, and, and I think this trickles into underground rap because the labels that are putting out underground rap still don't want to be sued, even if their product is not for a mainstream audience. They're still wanting to avoid lawsuits, especially because the margins are so thin to begin with. It kind of pushes the entire genre in a different direction sonically because people want to be able to have successful music careers. So I do think that, you know, I, I think that changed... The sound of the music a lot, I think, because the reality of it for me is that most of my favorite albums couldn't be made today, like legally. They just wouldn't be able to be made. And, and you know, that's just something I think about a lot when I'm listening to newer music and, and going back to older music. And there's a certain feeling that the older music gives me. And a lot of times it's harder to get that from new stuff just in terms of the sonics that I appreciated the most. There's... Obviously a lot there, but I want to move on to your record, right? So the full title of this record, why, why, why don't you say it so that I don't mess it up? Give me, the, give me okay. the full title. So this is the thing. The business title is Component System with the Auto Reverse. But that's not what you call it. Right. Because it's got a fuller spiritual title, which is a tape called Component System with the Auto Reverse, recorded sometime in 1997. That's the full, real title of it in my heart. And that's not a joke. That That is an actual cassette tape, right? There was a, a mixtape called that you named Component System. Yep. So what was that tape? Was that the actual tape you were playing on IG the other day? Yeah, that was the one. That was the one. So there was like uh, BCC and... Yeah, La Fleur La Flash Goshka's on there. Semi-automatic, that Wu-Tang song. It's funny. I remember the songs. I remember this tape by the colors of the songs in my head more than I could tell you exactly the names of the songs that were on there. Was this one of your like taped off the radio cassettes? Yes, but this was one that I used to call like I used to call them all star tapes. So I'd fall asleep taping the radio. You'd, you'd wake up and find out what you had and listen to that for a couple of weeks. And then you'd identify these are the best songs from this 
tape. And then these are the best songs. And then I would just make a tape of all the best songs off of all the tapes. And that tape was Component System. Got it. I assume you had multiple of these, you know, named cassette tapes. Why choose Component System particularly to name your album after? Because I'm also evoking that stereo style, the component system, like that look and that feel and like the tactile way I used to press the stop button and the eject button and press the auto reverse and watch the tape loop and the CD changer come out. Like all of that is um, it's a visceral part of my memories of enjoying music at that time. And so I thought that name was especially fitting because I want to evoke that whole picture in the music that I'm making now. Yeah. I mean, this is the story you're telling in this album and you're, you're very explicit about it. You know, this is my tribute to 96, 97, listening to the radio, taping stuff off the radio. I know you're someone who thinks a lot about marketing and narratives, right? Looking, looking at the world, looking at your own music. So that's the story of this album. But what what is part of this album that did not make it into the story of this album that you're sending out to people like me? That's a great question. And, and I didn't necessarily know this at the time, but I've had a couple of conversations now about the album and it's kind of uh, emerged in my mind that there are, there are narratives in this that aren't the narrative. One of them is, um, so my last album's Anime Trauma and Divorce. You know, I move out on my own February of 2020. And then a month later, we're in full worldwide lockdown. And the apartment I moved to was on Crenshaw and Homeland. That's the name of one of the songs on the album. And what I didn't realize, because I moved out of that apartment a year ago this week. And so I was there for about a year and a half. And I made most of this album while I was living there. And what I've realized, and, and it's especially apparent in that song, Crenshaw and Homeland, that intersection was making me lose my mind. I lived across the street from a 7-Eleven and I've learned, like globally, it feels like anything can happen in a 7-Eleven parking lot. There is no law enforcement. There's nobody there to stop anybody from doing anything ever. It is just constant chaos, even after the store is closed. And there was a mechanic that I lived next to and they had a, you know, so there's mechanic noises all day and they had a dog that barked all night at nothing. There were um, car accidents on that corner all the time. There were shootings on that corner sometimes. There was a sect of Hebrew Israelites that would assemble on that corner every Saturday. And just the way that their loudspeaker was positioned, it went directly into my window. And for three hours, I could hear nothing but them harassing people walking by. My goodness. And my stress level, my my level of alertness, like I just, I, I had not relaxed in a year and a half. And I think that's a big part of that album too. I think some of the urgency with which I'm rapping and writing is reflective of like feeling like I was in survival mode that entire time. And I think that's a that's a that's definitely a narrative in the album that's not put forward. Mm. You mentioned anime trauma and divorce, and I would say, and in fact, you have said, I'm not getting this out of the air, 
that like the three albums leading up to this one, Dark Comedy, Brick Body Kids, and Anime Trauma and Divorce, have this arc of getting more personal, more personal, more personal. Why did this one go in the opposite direction? I felt too vulnerable after Anime Trauma and Divorce. As much as it helped me to create that album, the process of putting it out as a business commodity was deeply uncomfortable for me. And uh, I came out of it feeling very raw and very sensitive. And I wanted to separate my vulnerable self from the business again. I don't know if that's permanent, but certainly with this album, I just, I wasn't as interested in putting that on display. So have, have we reached the sort of peak introspection or is there like maybe in the future you go further in that direction than your previous album? I mean, I, I would say even on this one where I do feel like I have a lot of armor on this album, I do think there's still some moments of me really plumbing the depths of my psyche and a little bit of my heart too on a, on a few of the songs. So I do think I'll always have a little bit of that in my stuff. I don't know if I'm ever going to completely put that forward again. I don't know if I will. I think I might have to get stronger in some ways before I try to do that again. How do you mean? There's a certain way in which you have to deal with your art as a product, as a creator, when you have to go out there and sell it. There's a certain distance I think you have to have from it in order to not read every YouTube comment or freak out at every review. And I wasn't able to have that with that last project because it was too personal. Like it, a review of it didn't feel like a review of an album. It felt like a review of me. And uh, I wasn't in a place where I had the resources to really like deal with that in a healthy way. So this album, there is plenty of introspective stuff on it thematically and, and directly, but a lot of it's about rapping. Yep. About being impressive as a rapper, about trying to say, you know, I am a great rapper. What kind of things impress you when you hear someone rap? Like, what are you listening for? I'm a big sucker for rhymes. Rhymes I haven't heard. Word play, energy, confidence. But the foundation for me is, is rhymes, for sure. I want, I want to hear the rhyme I haven't heard before. Because I've been... The real hook for me for rapping when I first started in high school was like, how many rhymes can I find in the English language? So, you know, this many years in, Anybody who can who can regularly come up with rhymes I haven't heard, like I'm I'm there. Will you ever repeat a rhyme if you come up with something? Will you be like, I used that four albums ago. I can't possibly rhyme these two words again. I try not to do that, but I have done that by accident. What I've really become aware of is that oftentimes when I rhyme stuff on feature verses, I don't pay enough attention to whether or not I've used it before. So like a lot like I'll, I'll hear a lot of features I didn't like, oh man, I ended up using that same scheme on something else because I, I didn't, I just didn't remember <laughs> because it was a feature. <laughs> so yeah, but I definitely, I definitely avoid using stuff I've used on albums. I try to, but it happens. And what is it about rhyming in particular? Like I know you've given a lot of thought to this. Like what is it about rhyming to unexpected things? How do you think about like the connection that creates between those two things? A lot of times for me, it's about trying to find that connection and how to make that connection resonant with something for me. It hit me a long time ago when I was really getting into writing and listening to how other people wrote that all of us have the same words. And I think the interesting thing about what makes an MC um, special or unique is how they tailor those words to their persona. If you look at the way Eminem uses rhyming words, they are in support of a persona of 
Slim Shady, who does certain things. If you look at cannabis, for instance, Red Man, for instance, like we all have the same words. We're all using the same two, three syllable patterns. And, and if ambitious, we, you know, try to rhyme even more syllables. But at the end of the day, like the real thrill of it is finding the ones that support the character you have created. And I think, you know, finding the meanings between those two rhyming words is about trying to find the way that it is resident, resonant for me as Open Mike Eagle, the rap character. That to me is where the where the fascination starts, but it, you know, goes real deep. That's interesting. You know, I just yesterday I was looking at uh an excerpt of one of Sondheim's books. Like he has he has collections of his lyrics, right? And his sort of commentary in there. And he has this one section where he just goes off on Lorenz Hart of Rogers and Hart, really going after him. And he says uh, one of his faults is sacrificing meaning for rhyme, like using a wow. using a rhyming word, even though you get the meaning wrong, you know, even though you're saying the wrong thing. Is that something you ever think about? How do you avoid it? Like, I guess I was just curious, as someone who uses so many rhymes, how do you think about making sense versus saying stuff that rhymes? The thing about me is that I've always had, I tend to always have something to say. So I'm never rhyming just to rhyme. There's usually some hypothesis or some thesis statement. There's something informing what I'm trying to say in a verse or in a bar. Even if I'm, you know, like I said, I've, I've tried to steer this back towards being more impressive. But even in that, I'm trying to say things that feel really real for me and use complex or interesting rhymes to do that. So I think in that, that doesn't end up being a problem for me because I think I know who I am as a writer. I think I know who I am as a character. And even, but, and, and the funny thing about that is who I am is the person who's always trying to figure out who he is, you know? So it, there's, there's a constant machinery there, but I think it ensures that I always have a purpose. And if I didn't have a purpose, then I think things would just sound like they were being rhymed for rhyme's sake. But I think because I do always, at the end of the day, have something I'm trying to say, that always comes before the rhymes. In addition to rhyming, one other aspect of your style on this album that came out to me was like emphasis, was accents. The words you you emphasize and what they bring out. And is that something you're conscious of? And do you ever kind of go through lines, accenting different words, emphasizing different words, playing with that? I can't say that I've ever consciously refined that like oh let me go through and figure out how to say this word differently but i do think in my writing process now that's something i'm baking in to the writing now is like one of the ways to make this rhyme pattern or this punchline or this reference more interesting is to kind of bend it a little bit but yeah that typically is happening on the page that's not really happening after the fact mm. i don't know at what point sequencing came into this record for you but I don't think it's an accident that the last voice you hear on this record is Diamond D. It is absolutely not. I wanted to ask why. Because on the component system tape, and this didn't make the album, but the original component system tape, because I do have samples from that tape on the album. There's another portion where one of the, you know, one of the DJs that you hear on the album from that tape just randomly for no reason starts going on and on about Diamond D. Because he randomly during that show played a Diamond D song that was maybe like four or five years old. And he was like, nobody's called and asked me this, but just so it'll be said, the reason I played that Diamond D song is because it's the best song in the studio. And then he starts talking about Diamond's new album he's got coming out. And it's just like Diamond D, his work, his beats, his, his music has just been a part of my creative life for so long. 
that just it really means something in closing this loop and seeing how far I've come that I was able to work with him on this, not only with Beast, but then to get a verse from him too. That felt really good to me. Whenever I listen to the album and I and I get to his verse and and it and it, everything just cuts off right. Like that really feels like one of my old tapes because it's him. You out front with your boys tonight. Come on, fake Rolexes and moist tonight. Ladies say the drip is ill. My voice is right. Pad is crazy. Spectre Rolls Royce is tight. Let's go, 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 go.